Good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for your patience with us as we try to navigate our way through COVID and uh, whether it's good and right for us to meet or whether it would be more advantageous for us not to meet, more safe for us not to meet. We do appreciate your patience with us. We promise you that in the days ahead, we will do our very best to meet in person as much as we possibly can. If it seems like... Um, it would be wiser for the sake of our congregation and for the sake of our community not to meet. We'll let you know that. But uh, we, we will do our very, very best to meet as, as much as we possibly can. Way back in early October, uh, I started a seven-week series called Let My People Think that we have yet to finish. Quarantine and COVID and holidays all conspired to keep us from finishing that series. I'm determined today to finish that series once and for all. But before I do that, I want to talk about something for just a moment that has uh, stunned me, and I think it stunned our entire staff, and I think it stunned our elder board as well, and it's something for which I struggle to find any natural explanation for. When the shelter-in-place orders hit back in March, uh, I think everyone recognized that 2020 was going to be an economically perilous year. And I'm sure most, if not all of you, felt concerned about how the pandemic would affect you and your family, your health, um, but your finances as well. And I think anybody who runs any kind of organization, whether it's a, a, a local business, a corporation, a governmental agency, a nonprofit organization, I think anybody who runs an organization like that began almost immediately to think about contingency plans and about how to survive. I know I did. In addition to trying to make uh, decisions about how and if and when we could meet, I was concerned about if and how City Church would survive financially and what kind of measures uh, we might have to take to ensure our survival. Last week, when all of the 2020 financial contributions were tallied up, it turns out that contributions to City Church in 2020, in the year of COVID, were higher than any other year in our short history. It's amazing. It allowed us to not only meet, but surpass our budgeted giving for 2020. I, I want to be quick to say that most churches I know are struggling severely. Some have closed their doors, some have made drastic reductions to their staff, some may close their doors in the future. I, I want to be very clear that City Church is no more deserving than any other church in the area, which is why I said that I can't find a natural reason to explain the overwhelming generosity to our church in 2020. I can only find supernatural reasons to explain it. That the power of God the power of God's grace working through your generous hearts proved his faithfulness once again to this church. You are, without question, the most generous group of people that I have ever been acquainted with. And I don't want you to think for a minute that the most important metric by which we measure our church's health is contributions and giving. There are other more important metrics, but it is a metric and on behalf of our elder board and staff, I want to say thank you for being the kind of people you are 
the overwhelmingly generous people you are and for allowing God to move in your hearts this past year in the way that he did. Thank you so very much. I want to give thanks and I want to say a word of prayer together. Gracious Father, we pause this morning to say thank you for your steadfast faithfulness to City Church, for your work in the hearts of your people here, for the incredibly generous people of this church. Bless their sacrifices, Father. Further your revolution through City Church. Transform us into your disciples, disciples who make more disciples. And let there be a revival for Jesus Christ that begins in this city. We are mindful, too, that there have been many people throughout the short history of this church who have made significant sacrifices to get City Church to this point, some of whom have gone home to be with you already. People who did not live to see today, didn't live to see all the people who attend City Church now, but whose sacrifices live on in the lives of the people in this church. Thank you for those saints who are with you now, Lord. And let City Church preach the gospel with power long enough that even the people who attend City Church now will not live long enough to see the people in the 22nd century who will attend this church because of the sacrifices that people today have made for them in the future. We pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward powerfully from City Church, both in word and in the lives of the people who attend here. And Father, in a nation increasingly fractured, polarized, even traumatized. We ask that you would use us as a church to show the world around us the power of Jesus Christ to unify people, to turn self-centered people into servants of others. Father, let your love be shown richly through us to one another and to the people of our city in a way that transcends race, ethnicity, political affiliation, and economic disparities. We pray this morning for those in our church with COVID, and those in our city and geographic area with COVID, we pray for their recovery. We pray for frontline medical personnel. We pray for their physical and emotional well-being. We pray for the leaders of our city, county, state, and nation to guide us with unifying wisdom through the weeks and the months ahead. We pray also for those who, loved, who lost loved ones this past year. Be near to the brokenhearted, to the grieving, to those who mourn. Transform us into a family who mourn with one another and who celebrate with one another. And now, Father, open our hearts, our ears, our eyes to your truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray today. Amen. Back in 2012, you may remember that Apple wanted to come out with their own version of Google Maps, and so they introduced on iOS 6 something called Apple Maps. And at first, at first, it seemed like Apple Maps was going to be <clears throat> a drastic improvement over Google's version, but people quickly began to realize that Apple Maps omitted important roads and buildings and rivers, even bridges. <laughs> The app was unreliable, often leading people on wild goose chases, heading, heading in the opposite direction of where they wanted to go. The former tech columnist for the New York Times wrote this. He said, in short, Maps is an appalling first release. It may be the most embarrassing, least usable piece of software Apple has ever unleashed. 
When a person enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you discover over time that you have similarly been navigating through life with an appallingly inaccurate set of ideas about the world. Ideas that you learn either formally or through observation from your parents, your teachers, friends, culture at large, mentors, coaches, whoever. And as a result, somewhere along the line, you discovered the painful reality that you were misled in important ways regarding the nature of reality. And so you found yourself, or you find yourself today, somewhere wholly different than where you wanted to be. As I said, I want to conclude this morning this series that I began way back in October called Let My People Think. The idea behind this series was to give you a biblical roadmap, an accurate reflection, an an accurate guide to reality. We called it a biblical worldview. And we said that a worldview provides a model, you could use the word map, of the world which governs your daily decisions and actions. And so far, we've given you six basic elements of a biblical worldview. We've said first, that God is ultimate reality. He is the ultimate reality that holds the unity and the diversity of the world together. He is the substance of reality. Second, we said that God created the universe. Now, there are many different viewpoints, even within Christian circles, about how he did it and how long ago he did it. But the main idea is that the universe is not the product of random chance. God designed it. He is the author, the artist, the intelligent designer, the uncaused cause behind the universe. But we've also said, third, that part of a biblical worldview is that sin has corrupted God's creation. Someone asked me recently, well, if if God is so good, why would he create the world with so much sin and so much evil and so much suffering in it? What's the answer to that? the answer to that. He didn't. He didn't. He created a perfect world, but human sin has introduced pain, suffering, sickness, and evil, and death into it. Fourth, even though God would be perfectly just to leave us in our sinful condition, God entered time and space in the person of Jesus to redeem his people. God redeems sinners, we said. And through the death, and, and he does that through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Fifth, we said that God will restore his creation. There is a day still coming in which God will restore this creation to his original design. Redeemed sinners will forever dwell on this restored planet. Sixth, Satan is a defeated enemy. Personified supernatural evil is real in Satan. But he has already been defeated by God. Now, okay, so that's what we've given you so far. The question is, how do we know any of the things that I just mentioned are true? How do we know that God is the center of reality? How do we know that he created the universe? How do we know these things? Well, here is finally the seventh and the the seventh basic element of a biblical worldview that we end this series with this morning. We know these things... Because God has revealed himself to humanity. God has revealed himself to humanity. God, you see, is a God of revelation. Christianity is a religion of revelation. What do I mean by that? Well, turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 19 in the Old Testament. Psalm 19 in the Old Testament. While you're turning there to Psalm 19, let me ask you, 
If uh, the name Forrest Fenn means anything to you, any of you recognize that name, Forrest Fenn? Forrest Fenn is an 89-year-old treasure hunter from New Mexico. And uh, Finn wanted to inspire other people to venture out into the wild, into an adventure. And so 10 years ago, Finn hid a chest of gold, jewels, and other valuables worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And he shared cryptic clues to the treasure's location on his website and in a poem that he published in his autobiography called The Thrill of the Chase. Over 350,000 people over the last 10 years set out to find the treasure. Some people quit their jobs to go in search of it. Uh, Some people even died trying to find it. For 10 years, uh, the treasure remained unfound until earlier this year, an anonymous treasure hunter sent Finn a photograph of the treasure chest found in the precise location Finn had hidden it 10 years earlier. Psalm 19 tells us, That unlike Forrest Fenn's treasure, God does not hide himself from humanity nor provide cryptic clues as to his whereabouts or his identity that only the most intrepid explorer can find. Rather, he clearly reveals himself for anyone and everyone to find. Psalm 19 was written by Israel's most famous king, uh, King David. And the psalm divides neatly into two halves, each of which speaks to one of the two ways that God has plainly revealed himself to humanity. For the first way, to see the first way that God has revealed himself to humanity, let's read from verse 1. The heavens, Psalm 19 says, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night... They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of of its warmth. Make a note of this. One of the ways that God has revealed himself to humanity is through nature, through creation. One of the ways that God has revealed himself, this is what Psalm 19 is telling us in the first half, is that God has revealed himself through nature, through creation. Now, if you have a Bible in front of you, look back at the verbs again in verse 1. Nature proclaims, it declares. Verse 2, day after day, pours forth speech. Night after night reveals knowledge about God and his glory. This is, of course, all a a poetic way of saying that God is constantly, incessantly revealing himself to humanity through his creation. You don't have to search for hidden clues to the existence of God. He willingly and elaborately reveals himself through the majesty, the grandeur, and the intricacy of his creation. Psalm 19 is, is really, uh, one way to think of it is, is the Bible's answer to why people sit on the beach and watch a sunset, uh, or why you feel compelled to take pictures when you're standing at the base of a snow-capped mountain. It's because, Psalm 19 says, it's great art. No one's ever stood staring at a Rembrandt or listened to Beethoven's violin, Sonata Number 9, and thought, boy, it's just amazing how that painting, how that sonata just came together by chance. No one does that. And we know intuitively 
that like art, nature is the product of artistic vision. It is the project, it is the product of design, passion, imagination, and intentionality by an artist beyond any artist the world has ever known. We know that intuitively. Now, you might say, you might argue, well, it must not be that intuitive. Uh, many, many brilliant people, uh, teachers, philosophers, scientists throughout history, uh, many believe that nature is the product of evolution, and as a result, there is no capital A artist, and that life is meaningless and, and empty. Uh, Romans 1 in the New Testament tells us that the reason for that is that it is a kind of cosmic treason that the human mind and soul commits intentionally against God because of our desperate desire to believe that we are autonomous, independent, self-determining creatures. But to engage in this cosmic treason, we have to trick ourselves into denying reality. Watch, I'll put this on the screen for you. Watch this, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who notice, what's the word, who, who what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Did you see, did you see that? Did you see what God says we do? He says we suppress. We suppress the truth of God's creation. That word suppress means to hold it down. We, we hold it back. No matter what we say, we all know intuitively that there is an artist behind creation. In fact, it's impossible to speak of life without invoking the language of design. We look at the fine-tuning and the complexity of the universe, and we know that there is a creator. But we suppress it. And in doing so, even the most brilliant minds display their foolishness. The late, uh, the late Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, uh, once noted, and I'm going to read this to you. I want you to listen to it. I think it's fascinating the way he puts this. He says, on Christmas Day, 1968, the three astronauts of Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon and headed for home. Suddenly, over the horizon of the moon rose the blue and white earth garlanded by the glistening light of the sun against the black void of space. Those sophisticated men trained in science and technology, did not utter Einstein's name. They did not even go to the poets, the lyricists, or the dramatists. Only one thing could capture the awe-inspiring thrill of this magnificent observation. Billions heard the voice from outer space as the astronaut read it, in the beginning, God. The only concept worthy enough to describe that unspeakable awe, unutterable in any other way. In the beginning, God created the invasive, the inescapable sense of the infinite and the eternal. God has spoken, God has revealed himself to humanity through nature. 
Uh, someone once asked me, maybe you've had this question asked of you before, someone asked me one time, why won't God give me a sign that he's real if he wants me to believe in him? And the answer, of course, according to Psalm 19 and Romans 1, is that he is constantly giving you signs all day long, all night long, in the lightning and the thunder, in the dew of the morning grass, in the songs of the birds early in the morning. There are signs for you to see 24-7, 365 days a year. And there's a great deal that we can deduce about God just from looking at the world he created. We can deduce that he is a, a God of order, not of chaos. We can see that he values beauty and, and variety. We can see that he is extraordinarily powerful. But I think we do have to be honest about something. The nature does not tell us everything about God. Nature alone is not enough. I mean, if you think about nature, creation, in terms of communication, you could say that, that nature is God's nonverbal communication to us, right? The problem with nonverbal communication, though, is that it can be misunderstood. Even though my wife and I have been married for almost three decades, I, can't always, I still can't always interpret her nonverbal communication correctly. You've probably had this happen too. We've been out to dinner with people before, let's say, and I'm talking and I can feel her kick me under the table. I'm not always sure what the message is. She could be telling me a number of things. She could be telling me I'm talking too much. She could be telling me that I've just committed a social faux pas and to shut up now. She could be telling me that she's tired and that I need to wrap it up so that we can go home. Or she could be signaling to me that she's incredibly attracted to me in the moment which early in our marriage was how I usually interpreted that kick, only to learn that she was almost never communicating that. And by almost never, I mean never. My point is that sometimes nonverbal communication can be confusing. And so you see, if all we had was God's nonverbal communication, if all we had was just nature, just creation, we could be forgiven for being confused about some things about God. Like, what conclusion might you come to about God if all you had was nature and you just looked at the violence of nature, hurricanes and volcanoes and earthquakes, a lion attacking a buffalo for dinner? What conclusions might you draw if nature is all that you had? God does reveal himself to us in nature. But while nature can teach us a great deal about God, it's not enough. It's not a complete revelation of God. And Psalm 19 reflects that reality. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Verses 1 through 6, God communicates, God reveals himself to humanity through nature. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, writes David, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward, and we will stop there uh, this morning. Make a note of this. Besides communicating to us through nature... The second way that God has revealed himself to humanity is through his word. Through his word. He reveals himself to us non-verbally through nature. 
but he also reveals himself to us more completely through his verbal communication with his, the word, the Bible. This is what David is talking about when he refers to what he calls uh, by at least five different names. He calls it the law of the Lord. He calls it the statutes of the Lord, the, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord. He's talking about God's verbal communication to us in his word, the Bible. What we would think of now as both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When David wrote the only part of uh, the, the word, the Bible that Israel had was the law in the Old Testament. But today we have in the New Testament the fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus Christ. And so David calls the word of God, the, communicate, the verbal communication of God, more valuable than gold. Do you realize what he's saying when he says that? If someone came to you this afternoon and gave you a choice between the word of God and a gold bullion, David is saying, choose the word of God. Do you, do you, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that the word of God is that valuable? More valuable than gold, than much pure gold. You know, if you, gave a, if you gave a child, if you gave a small child the choice between a penny and a dime, you know what the child will choose? Yeah, they'll choose the penny every time because it's, because they don't understand, because the penny's bigger than the dime, they don't understand that the dime is worth more than the penny. And I think one can imagine that the angels in heaven look upon us and the way we value things other than the Bible in much the same way a parent looks upon a child who values a penny over a dime because of its size. If you have a choice between the Bible and gold, David says, if you have the choice between the Bible and pure gold, stacks of gold, bullion, choose the word of God. It's infinitely more valuable why? David describes it in a number of different ways, but uh, in the interest of time and for our purposes this morning, I just want you to look at verse 7 once again, verse 7. He says that the law of the Lord is perfect, and then notice that phrase, he says, refreshing the soul. Another translation would be that it restores the life. Uh, what does that mean? I want to describe to you what that means in the most relevant and concrete manner that I can this morning. Over the course of the last year, we have endured a pandemic in which hundreds of thousands of people have died. We have been locked inside of our homes and isolated to the point that according to a statistic I saw the other day, and by the way, I've not confirmed this, but I will just... I have no reason to doubt it that over 50% of people in America today are wrestling with some kind of mental illness because of the isolation of the pandemic. We have watched racial violence pour out onto our streets. We have watched as mobs this summer in anger lawlessly destroyed businesses, government buildings, and monuments. We have listened to politicians and pundits shout invectives at one another. Families have been torn apart over it, political ideologies. Unemployment rates were higher this past year than any other year since 1939. Many have been forced to shutter businesses and restaurants that represented their life's work and even their family's work. And this past year, uh, like, like many of you, I personally lost people that I loved and cared about. 
and watched others that I care about suffer physical and, and mental illnesses. And just when I thought that we had flipped the calendar to a new year and a glimmer of hope could be seen on the horizon, I watched on Wednesday with the rest of the world as a mob stormed the United States Capitol leaving four dead. And as I watched it, I felt a toxic combination of exhaustion, exhaustion with people and political ideologies and life, hopelessness, despair, discouragement. And if I'm honest with you this morning, a measure of hatefulness and resentment as well. Were this world the sum total of reality, if the fate of the world lie with human beings, if Instagram influencers were our highest source of inspiration and politicians our highest source of wisdom, life, I would argue, would seem more like death. But into the grimness and the despair of a pandemic in a country divided comes word that the hope of the world lies not in the hand of human beings, in the hands of human beings, but in the hands of a transcendent sovereign who is powerful, good, just, and merciful, whose statutes and decrees, whose statutes and decrees are trustworthy, whose wisdom makes the wisdom of man looks like, look like foolishness, who is so full of love for the broken human race that he would enter time and space to die at the hands of religious and political leaders so as to be both the just, both just and the justifier of human beings, whose power is so incomparably great that he can form a new humanity in which the dividing walls of race and gender and economic class are torn down, and among whom unity, forgiveness, compassion, empathy, humility, peace, and love would be their divine their defining traits, and that one day he would return to restore the world to its original design. That's what David means when he says that the word of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, restoring life. Do you need that this morning? Because God is gracious. He has revealed himself to us, not only in nature, but in his word. And this morning, I think it's important that we as the people of God remember that as dark as the days may seem now, that the darkest moment in human history was on the Friday that the embodiment of God's word in the person of Jesus Christ was crucified. All hope seemed lost. But a new dawn... The dawn of a new day was coming, and renewal and hope was in the wings of a new sunrise. The light of a new age, the hope of a new covenant, the creation of a new humanity rose with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because God has revealed that to us in his word, whatever the headlines, whatever the headlines outside the people of God, the headlines within the people of God are always three words that God has revealed to us in his word. He is risen. And those three words give us hope no matter how dark the days in which we live. And let me just give you three implications of this truth this morning. The first is, do you own a copy of the word of God? If not, buy one. Buy it this week. 
The second, do you read the Word of God? If not, start reading it. Make, a, make, a, you know, make that your, your thing this year. You're going to read through, uh, you're going to begin to read through the Word of God. It doesn't matter if it's a one-year thing. There's plenty of things out on the internet. You can find five-year schedules to read through the Word of God. Whatever. It doesn't matter that it's one year. Start to read it now. David says it is more, it is worth more than gold. Before you check the before you check what's happening on Wall Street, before you check the stock market, read the Word of God. That's shrewd, David says. Start to read the Word of God on a regular basis. Take it in. It is sweeter than honey, more valuable than all the gold of the world. Third, third, repent. Repent of putting your hope in politics and politicians. Because the hope of the world is not there. The hope of the world is in Jesus Christ and the people who embody the Lord Jesus Christ, his church. Repent. Would you bow with me for prayer? We thank you for Lord Jesus Christ, for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us uh, in nature, in general ways, but very specifically through the word, through the truth, through the Bible. We thank you that despite what happens in the world around us, we know that the future of the world lies not in human hands, but in the hands of a transcendent sovereign, uh, our king, the king of kings. Lord, uh, as your people, would you teach us to value your word? That we would value it in a way that uh, makes all the gold in the world look like nothing, look like pennies. Uh, Lord, would you give us a sense and, and, a, and a, a hunger and a taste for the sweetness that is your word? And Lord, this morning, we come before you as a people and we repent that we ever put our hope in politics, political ideologies, politicians. And we repent that we have allowed that to divide us, our families, our friendships. Today, we put our hope in you. We put our hope in you. You are the hope of the world, Lord Jesus Christ. Turn us into a people who are the embodiment of the hope of the world. Because we worship you and because your spirit dwells within us. We thank you for the truth of the scriptures, that your statutes are trustworthy, that we can rely upon them. And we thank you that your precepts are truth. And so, Lord, as we move through our days and our months and our years of our life, let us, as your people, think that we would view the world in a way that is consistent with reality and the reality that you have revealed to us in your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray today. Amen.